Welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nap Nasworth. I've been exploring the intersection of churches, Christians, theology, and public life for over 20 years as both a professor and a journalist. But I still have lots of questions. I invite you to continue learning with me as I interview interesting voices in this field. Who is former Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr.'s interim replacement, Jerry Prevo? And what does he have to do with evangelicals and oil? And I'm not talking about the oil you put in your salad dressing. I'm talking about petroleum, the stuff that makes our cars go and our modern economy relies upon. It's also a product that plays a major role in geopolitics, especially in the Middle East. My guest today is K.L. Marshall, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Edinburgh School of Divinity and the author of Faith and Oil, How the Alaska Pipeline Shaped America's Religious Right. Mark Knoll, an expert on the history of evangelicals who teaches at Notre Dame, says about the book, quote, Marshall adds important information, especially on the tight links between big oil and the American evangelical community. She also draws thoughtful, edifying conclusions, as herself an evangelical, from a story she tells very well. K.L. Marshall, welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nap. All right, so first, just give us a little bit of background on... uh, how this book came about? Okay, well, to back up a little bit, Faith and Oil is really a book about values, and especially about the cross-pollination of values between America's oil industry and conservative Protestantism, and how those values have shaped American culture. In particular, it's about the values of the voting bloc that's known as the religious right, which came into existence during the 1970s, which was the same time that the Alaska pipeline was being built. There'd already been a cross-pollination between oil and Christian values prior to the 1970s, but with the pipeline and the simultaneous rise of the religious right, that convergence between oil and Christianity became much stronger. With the simultaneous rise of the religious right and Alaska's oil industry, evangelical values shifted from things like advocating for the poor and leading reform movements, things like the abolition of slavery and being part of the civil rights movement, to seeking wealth and power. Faith in Oil is about how this transfer of values happened through movements such as the Prosperity Gospel, something called Christian Reconstruction, and more recently, the New Apostolic Reformation. These these movements have been very much entangled with the oil industry, particularly in Alaska, and they profoundly shaped the political views of Sarah Palin, and she made those values mainstream when she took a national stage in 2008 as John McCain's running mate. Well, I came here to Alaska last summer to try to understand why the religious right was so strong here, going back to the 1970s. At first, I really had no idea about Alaska's oil industry and how much it defined the state. But I had read a lot about Jerry Prevo. In just reading a secondary literature, books that journalists and scholars had written in the 1970s and 1980s about Jerry Falwell and the rise of the moral majority, the state of Alaska just kept coming up, along with this man, Jerry Prevo. But I also recognized how significant Sarah Palin has been in reshaping the religious right on a national level. And as you may recall, she was the governor of a small town in Alaska called Wasilla before becoming the state's governor, right before she was tapped as John McCain's running mate. The reason why the religious right is so strong in Alaska had to be more 
than charismatic individuals like Jerry Prevo and Sarah Palin. There had to have been something more here that was going on. Well, many people do not realize Alaska is an oil-producing state. 90% of its government is funded by oil money. And what I realized is that the hyper-conservative and fundamentalist culture that Jerry Prevo represented and that Sarah Palin brought to the national spotlight in 2008 is very heavily embedded in oil. The crisis over the state's budget last summer opened my eyes to how much oil has shaped the populist form of fundamentalism here in Alaska. To oversimplify what happened with the budget crisis, Alaska has been in a crunch over the past few years because the government dramatically lowered the taxes on oil companies. And so it hasn't been drawing in nearly enough money to meet its budgetary needs. What happened last summer is the governor used a line item veto to slash funds to all of the state's social services in an attempt to balance the budget. He severely cut funding to things like the University of Alaska, the state senior programs, homeless shelters, a lot of things of that nature. And in determining whether or not these budget vetoes would pass, the battle lines were drawn between hyper-conservative fundamentalists who favored the budget vetoes because they supported this mindset that we don't need the government to help us and we can make it on our own. And those who believe that the government has an obligation to provide a social safety net, especially for the most vulnerable citizens. And like I said, that's a very oversimplified account of what happened. But listening to all of the arguments, seeing how much people's lives were going to be impacted by the budget vetoes made me realize this was not about money. This was hardly even about the budget. It was about values. Like I said, there was a transfer of values between oil and Christianity that happened in Alaska with the construction of the pipeline and the simultaneous rise of the religious right back in the 1970s. But turns out, if you go back to the 1800s and the early 1900s, oil money had actually been used to fund a lot of Bible institutes. Things, places like Biola University was actually paid for with oil money. The founding of it came from oil money. Foreign missionaries were funded with oil money. Revivalist preachers like the famous Billy Sunday. Oil money even paid for the publication of the series called The Fundamentals, which is where we get the term fundamentalism. This transfer of values between oil politics and Christianity is absolutely nothing new. It didn't start in Alaska last summer with the budget crisis, and it didn't start with the construction of the oil pipeline during the 1970s. It's actually been going on all across the country for a century and a half. Okay. And so, and recently, the president of Liberty University, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, had to step down after a very salacious sex scandal. And uh, and Prevo was his replacement or the interim replacement. So how are those two connected? How is Prevo connected to Liberty University? Um, so Jerry Prevo, if like like I said earlier, he constantly appeared alongside Jerry Falwell back in the 1970s and 1980s. But he's the guy that nobody paid attention to. Prevo. Um, would go onto national media events with Falwell. They would both be interviewed together. And he's now the president of Liberty University following the scandal around Gary Falwell Jr. And the relationship is pretty extensive. It goes back really far. Prevo actually attended the same college as Jerry Falwell Sr., which was Baptist Bible College in Missouri. And so they were both trained in the same line of thought, which is dispensational fundamentalism. And they both had a very nationalist bent to their theology. 
Kriva moved to Alaska in 1971 to serve as a pastor of a church called Anchorage Baptist Temple. It became the largest church in the state because of how rapidly he grew it through some really aggressive growth programs. He was also the chairperson of the Moral Majority in Alaska. The Moral Majority is the organization that Jerry Falwell Sr. founded in 1979 as the flagship organization of the religious right. So Jerry Prevo was the leader of it here in Alaska, and he grew the moral majority here just as quickly as he grew Anchorage Baptist Temple. He grew it so quickly that within six months of founding the moral majority in Alaska, it had completely taken over the state's Republican Party. His influence and his populist form of fundamentalism represented the populism that was engendered by the pipeline politics of the 1970s. So keep in mind, he came to Alaska in 1971, and a couple of years after the pipeline was finished in 1979, he founded the Moral Majority here. He's been one of the most influential people in the state of Alaska. He's so influential. Everybody's heard of him. Nobody's neutral about him. And I really don't find any surprise in the fact that he's now the president of Liberty University. It's just that nobody paid attention to him before now. But I actually did write about him quite a bit in Faith and Oil. Yeah, that, uh, I think it's, that's right. That Not many people had heard his name, uh, unless, of course, if you're in Alaska. Uh, but yeah, so he, he had a very close relationship with Falwell Sr. going back to school. I guess that that's where they met and became friends. Well, Jerry Prevo is younger than Jerry Falwell Sr. He went to Baptist Bible College a, a couple of decades later, about two decades later. Um, it's not very precise, but no, they wouldn't have met in college uh, because they didn't attend at the same time. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he just retired. Uh, is that correct? From, uh, from being a pastor recently, Yes, it was at the beginning of last summer that he stepped down as a pastor of Anchorage Baptist Temple. Okay. So he's, he's the, so now he's the interim president. Um, but he's, is he probably, how old is he? He's probably too old to, for them to select as the president. Is that right? Uh, I really can't say, I don't want to make a judgment on that matter. All I'm going to say is that I'm really not surprised that he's the person who did become the interim president. Yeah, because of his close ties to follow right. senior. Yeah, uh, just for my listeners, I'll, I want to read a paragraph th- that you had in your book about Priva. You write, quote, He was arguably the most controversial figure in the entire state, and pastors and Christians from Anchorage and beyond routinely staged peaceful protests that called for acknowledgement of the biblical call to love your neighbor. But despite being controversial, he was extremely influential, having relationships with not only national-level leaders in the moral majority, such as Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye, but also state and national level politicians, including the beloved Uncle Ted Stevens. His rhetoric that bashed liberals in October 1994, his church hosted a, quote, scared the liberals Sunday, in which the guest speaker caricatured liberals as non-intellectual elites with PhDs and supported the American military's involvement in the Middle East was reflected by Sarah Palin when she ran alongside John McCain and then emerged as the leader of the Tea Party movement. Yeah, so uh, so it sounds like he's a good fit for, you know, if, if Liberty wants to continue in the path of uh, follow up Jr., right? Yes. And uh, so he spoke this week. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but he uh, he praised, he praised Paul Joe. Falwell Jr. for making the school wealthy, 
that he, there was no apology for you know the lack of accountability regarding the Falwell scandal or anything like that. So uh, I don't know. Does that surprise you? Um, regarding the lack of an apology about the Falwell scandal, I really can't say either way. I know that he has spoken openly from the podium at Anchorage Baptist Temple about his relationship with his wife, but we know that the Falwell scandal was not about Falwell Jr.'s wife. I really just can't say anything about that. But the in, in that same speech, he had praise Falwell Jr. for making Liberty University so wealthy. And so what I want to draw in here is another aspect of Jerry Prevo, which is that he has a reputation for promoting the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is something that goes hand in hand with the blend of oil and fundamentalism. So I want to read to you a newspaper quote from an anthropologist at the University of Alaska. This is from a few years ago, but it talked about the prosperity gospel and Prevo. What he wrote was, the most prominent prosperity theology church in Alaska is the Anchorage Baptist Temple, headed by Reverend Jerry Prevo. The thinking goes, God has chosen people, both in human and corporate form, to be wealthy. We should seek wealth to seek God's blessing. We should honor that blessing by reducing taxes and other restrictions on the rich and their corporations. It's God's will people are rich, and secular governments should not impede on God's will. Taxation is tantamount to sin. In Alaska, the multinational oil company's wealth is assigned to prosperity theology adherence of God's blessing, and the demand for lower oil taxes has God's blessing as well. Resource development, if not sacred, is close to it. By implication, those who would channel Alaska's wealth into public use, such as roads, schools, and communications infrastructure via oil taxes, must be the devil's consorts. That's not from a theologian. That's from an anthropology professor at the University of Alaska. Okay, so this is interesting on many levels. So one is that, so a lot of fundamentalists uh, reject the prosperity gospel and that you, you generally find the prosperity gospel more with uh, Pentecostal and charismatic churches. But here you have an example of uh, somebody who was on the board at Liberty University and now is the uh, interim president at Liberty University who is preaching the prosperity gospel. I mean, how did that happen? Well, a lot of it, probably has to do with the blending of oil politics and fundamentalism that you have here in Alaska. So if I can just back up a little bit and talk about how far back this relationship between oil and fundamentalism goes and try to shed a little bit of light on where the prosperity gospel comes in here. Many of the most significant Bible colleges today were founded by fundamentalist oilmen going back to the post-Civil War era up until about World War II. If you look at Lyman Stewart, he was the oilman who founded Union Oil, and he used his money to endow the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, which is what we now call Biola University. Charles Fuller was also an oilman, and he used his wealth to fund Fuller Seminary, Oral Roberts in funding Oral Roberts University, and schools like Baylor College, which is now Baylor University, got a lot of money from oil. And in a way, these independent oilmen represented the fundamentalist aspect of American Protestantism in the post-Civil War era. They were these roughneck wildcatters who had been lucky enough to strike oil, and they believed that this was God's blessing on them. But they also knew that the next oil bust would make them bankrupt. 
when you start looking deeply into this phenomenon of the independent oil men funding Bible institutes, what you start to find is that since the Civil War, oil has been at the nexus of American expressions of both Protestantism and capitalism. And these guys, these independent fundamentalist oil men, knew that preserving capitalist competition was the only way that they could keep their oil empires alive. And what do you think they were teaching in these Bible colleges that they were founding? If we could go back and look at the syllabi in the textbooks, we would probably find that they support this roughneck capitalism and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. We can also go back and look at some newspaper and journal articles from this particular time period in American history and see how pastors were writing about oil. It was God's blessing on America. Then there's a fellow that you might have heard of at some point in your life, J.D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the titan of the oil industry, and his standard oil company was a monopoly that was outpricing and buying out all of these independent oil companies from the 1860s until the early 20th century. So these fundamentalist oil men, they weren't just competing against the boom and bust cycle of the, a very volatile oil industry and believing that with God's blessing, they could strike it rich. They were also competing against J.D. Rockefeller and trying to stay afloat against this monopoly that he had going on. He funded the University of Chicago School of Divinity. And the University of Chicago taught a liberal Protestantism as opposed to the fundamentalist Protestantism that was taught by these independent oil men. This liberal Protestantism that you have coming out of the University of Chicago was skeptical of things like claims to divine revelation in talking about the Bible and how we understand the Bible. In this particular vein, the Bible is an ancient text that we should understand within a certain cultural context, not really the divine word of God. So this is really different. But J.D. Rockefeller was having taught at the liberal University of Chicago is very different than what's being taught at these fundamentalist schools where they need this up by your bootstraps, wildcatting fundamentalist capitalism. So the battle between independent oil men and J.D. Rockefeller, it didn't just take place in courts or in oil fields. It took place in Bible colleges and seminaries and churches. And if you want to read more about this, I highly recommend that you look at Darren Dotruck's book, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. But bringing this back to Prevo and bringing this back to the prosperity gospel, we see that the struggle between fundamentalism and liberalism, you know, between these independent wildcatting oil men and the monopoly of J.D. Rockefeller, it continues to play itself out in Alaskan politics, which are defined by oil. Jerry Prevo and Sarah Palin represent the fundamentalists and independent oil men and who who need God's blessing to strike it rich in a volatile, boom-and-bust economy. And we see this be reflected in their use of things like the prosperity gospel, their calls for removing government regulation because these inhibit oil companies from being able to make the money that they need to make, and also their disdain for government intervention and regulation because these inhibit their, the ability of oil companies to make a lot of money. Okay, this is just an amazing story to me for, for many reasons. Uh, as you know, our research interests really overlap quite a bit. Um, my master's thesis was about dispensational premillennialism and the support for Israel. And then I did a PhD on the Christian right. And, you know, my bookshelves are just full of books on evangelicals and the Christian right. But it's like, a uh, you know, something that, that, that can still surprise me because 
what you're telling me about the relationship with oil is something I've never heard of before, even though this is something I've dedicated most of my life to studying. And, and just the, the whole notion that this, even, even this split between fundamentalists uh, and the modernist controversy has its basis to some degree in a split over big oil versus the independent oil people and so forth. So it's just an amazing relationship that uh, that you've really hit upon and, and really uh, helps us to understand just uh, a lot that's going on, that has gone on in the history of evangelicalism. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. So recently I heard uh, Trump in a uh, say about his rival, Joe Biden. He said, quote, that... Uh, I'm sorry, but he said that Biden, quote, hurt the Bible, hurt God. He's against God. He's against guns. He's against energy. And so when I hear energy, I think oil. So uh, uh, thinking in terms of the Christian right and their support for Donald Trump, that kind of makes sense to you, right? That he would include uh, God and energy in the same sentence. Yes. And let's not forget that he also included guns in that sentence. Uh, if you go back to the rise of Sarah Palin in 2008, that was one thing that she really advocated. She openly advocated for oil and for guns in particular. And so a lot of that ideology about God, guns and oil that we saw at the Republican National Convention, we can, in a very um, in a much more immediate context, we can trace it back to Sarah Palin and her 2008 run alongside John McCain. And if we really want to understand that better, where we have this uh, trinity, if you will, of God, guns, and oil, again, you come back to Alaska and start looking at this form of fundamentalism that, and populism that became embedded in the state's oil politics. So one of the things you talk about a lot in the book is dispensational premillennialism. So dispensationalism is this uh, belief that God relates to uh, humans difference in different ways in different eras throughout time. And, uh, you know, there's some theologians who are serious thinkers who are dispensationalists. And then, but there's also this aspect where dispensationalism has influenced a lot of these sort of crazy end times books that were, uh, have become very popular and I know they were very popular in the 90s. Uh, a lot of Christian bookstores, there would be whole sections, you know, about the about the end times. And during the Gulf War, you know, there was books about Saddam Hussein being the Antichrist and all sorts of stuff about how the Middle East uh, and what's going on in the Middle East is tied to, uh, you know, what uh, is tied to the end times. Uh, and so... how. And of course, oil is big in the Middle East as well. So talk a little bit about how that relates to uh, oil in Alaska and how the dispensationalism relates to that. Yes. So oil is something that became very heavily embedded in dispensationalism, particularly in the 1970s. And that shouldn't be a surprise because if we go back to the post-Civil War era, when we have these fundamentalist oil men who were funding these Bible institutes like Biola, a lot of them were dispensationalists. Dispensationalism came into the United States during the Civil War with a Bible teacher from Britain named John Nelson Darby. 
prior to the Civil War, much of America, American Protestantism was defined by something called post-millennialism. And post-millennialism says that we can, through uh, progress, through promotion, through, through promotion of social programs, caring for the poor, building a better society on earth, we can bring in a millennium of peace and prosperity. And then after this millennium will be the second coming of Christ. Premillennialism is, it says the exact opposite. Premillennialism says that society is in a state of regression and that is going to continue to regress until the second coming of Christ. And then he will usher in a millennium in which he is literally seated on his throne ruling from Jerusalem. So it, going back to the fact that this came into America during the Civil War, well, during the Civil War, it was became very easy to believe that society is in a state of regression and that the end of the world is going to come here soon. And it, that was the exact time that these oil men were striking it rich in these boom and bust cycles and founding these Bible institutes. And so you see this mix of all these different ideas that came together going back to the late 1800s. Going back to what you said about what dispensational theology is, just to reiterate it, it's a method of interpreting the Bible that sees the Bible as divided into different dispensations. And a dispensation is basically a promise that was made between God and humanity. And every single time, humanity fails to uphold its share of the promise. And the result is a judgment on the world. So if you look at Noah's flood in Genesis from a dispensational perspective, this is God's judgment on the world for its failure in a particular dispensation. And then, like you said, back in the 90s with the Persian Gulf War and then coming out of the Persian Gulf War, dispensational theology became very popular through the Left Behind series. The Left Behind series is about an event called the rapture in which all of the quote unquote true Christians are taken up into heaven, and then those that are left behind must face the final judgment on the world. And this is what is called the Great Tribulation. And like you said, there's some very well-respected dispensationalist Bible scholars, and they've contributed a lot to our understanding of the Bible. But at the same time, dispensationalism has been used to justify some really thorny issues like the nationalism that you see in fundamentalist leaders like Jerry Prevo and Jerry Falwell. And the church that Sarah Palin attended for much of her life may not be fully dispensationalist. I attended and also read a lot of stuff from the website, spoke with some of the leaders. They might not be fully dispensationalist, but back in 2008, just before the election season, one of the pastors who used to work there made some pretty controversial statements that came out of his understanding of dispensational theology. And those statements were about how in the end times during the Great Tribulation, Alaska is going to be a refuge and we need to develop its oil and other resources in order to prepare it for this role. And what's particularly significant as far as the book Faith and Oil goes, is how much dispensational theology figures into how people think about Alaska's oil. And to understand this, we need to go back to what was a really pivotal moment in recent American history, which was the 1973 OPEC embargo. What happened here is that oil-producing countries, such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, they cut off all of the oil exports to the United States, and the American economy immediately began to collapse. 
Now, there's a lot more to the OPEC embargo than just that one little sentence. I go into more detail about it in the book, In Faith and Oil. Well, five years before the OPEC embargo is when oil was discovered on Alaska's North Slope. And this was back in 1968. But Congress did not approve construction of a pipeline to transport that oil out of the ground until a couple of weeks after the OPEC embargo hit. So what you need to understand here is that approval of the Alaska pipeline didn't come because oil was discovered. It came because of this 1973 OPEC embargo. And we needed to very quickly find another way to meet our energy needs. At that time, there was a huge push to develop renewable energy. We saw the the beginnings of the environmental movement. We had the very first Earth Day celebrated in this period between 1968 and 1973. Environmentalists pushed really hard to not have the pipeline in Alaska constructed, to not uh, access Alaska's oil, but instead to push for developing an a new infrastructure based on renewable energy. We chose to stay on oil, and that is very significant. So here's where things get really interesting. In response to the events surrounding the OPEC embargo, there was a noted dispensationalist named John Walborg. He was the president at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he wrote a book called Armageddon Oil and the Middle East Crisis. What you need to understand about this book is that this was not some out-of-the-way volume that you see in the very back of the dollar store. This book sold over 2 million copies. Walward's thesis in the book was that the final judgment on the world, the Great Tribulation, would center on the Middle East, which is the same region where we get much of our oil and was the same region that had stopped exporting its oil to America and caused the American economy to collapse. But he also went so far as to say that God had providentially placed oil under the ground in the Middle East to enact the events of the end times, that God was using oil to draw the events of the world towards the Great Tribulation so that these Bible prophecies, what dispensationalists see as prophecies about the end times, could be fulfilled. In the time since Armageddon oil in the Middle East was written, Several other dispensationalists, especially coming out of Dallas Theological Seminary, have written about how God is using oil to drive current events towards the tribulation. So why this matters for Alaska in terms of Alaska's oil, but also in terms of contemporary politics, one reason is because the events that led to the construction of the pipeline are the same events that led dispensationalists to believe that oil is a divine resource that God's using to lead up to the tribulation. They're both grounded in the 1973 OPEC embargo. But another reason is that with influential Alaskans who use dispensationalism to understand the Bible, people like Jerry Prevo and Sarah Palin, oil came to shape how many Alaskans view not only their economy, but also their faith because of how much oil was embedded in dispensationalism. But again, this goes back far beyond the 1973 energy crisis. This goes back to the Civil War era with the rise of fundamentalist oil men and how they're using their oil money to fund Bible institutes. But let's go back again to the 1973 energy crisis. This was a very significant time in reshaping how America would view itself in relation to energy and in relation to Protestantism. We chose to stay on oil instead of switching to renewables. 
that in itself is very, very significant. I want to reiterate that. We could have taken advantage of that moment in history to get onto renewable energy, and we chose not to. We chose to drill in Alaska as a response to the OPEC embargo. What is also significant is that by choosing to stay on oil, we had to start drilling more in Alaska or in America, not just in Alaska, but in America, instead of exporting foreign oil. And so what you see here is the beginning of the modern America first populist oil politics. And the, that America first idea became really significant during the Reagan era, especially after the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979 permanently cut off our oil supply there. And this was the same time that the religious right was beginning to be organized by leaders like Jerry Falwell, who had a nationalist take on dispensational theology. So at the same time that we see this America first in oil, we also start seeing this America first in a new form of populist fundamentalism that would soon take over almost all of white evangelicalism. So the 1973 OPEC embargo and the ensuing construction of the Alaska pipeline as a response to that embargo is actually the foundation of the evangelical support of Donald Trump. Okay. And in terms of how the oil in Alaska relates to the end times, it, it's basically related to this notion of Christian nationalism that God has chosen America for a divine purpose. And so that oil is there to be a resource for America. That, that, am I stating that correctly? Yes, that is the gist of it. And then we can also tie in the prosperity gospel again here, saying that we need to pull the oil out of the ground because these are the riches that God has given us to use. And then also in there, we have something called dominionism or Christian dominionism, which is the foundation of the New Apostolic Reformation, which says God has given us dominion over the earth and over its resources and to not access them, to not use them, to not profit from them would be to go against what God wants and what God's plan for humanity is, and especially what God's plan for America is. All right. And you also write about Christian Reconstructionism. So uh, Christian Reconstructionist authors were very influential in the early part of the Christian right and have been uh, basically marginalized to a degree, but you, you found uh, some influence of their thinking and writing in particular on economics uh, at Sarah Palin's church. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, so if you look at what Christian Reconstruction is, it's this hyper-conservative movement. And it was founded by a man named R.J. Rush Duny. Um, and Christian Reconstruction suggests that Christians must reconstruct society so that it conforms to biblical law. And I'm going to quote you something from Christianity Today, an article that came out back in the 1980s talking about Christian Reconstruction. And this is back when it was on the fringes of even the religious right. So to start off, in the reconstructed society, there will be no federal government, nor will there be a democracy, which Reconstructionists regard as heresy. Government will be Republican with the Bible as a charter and the constitutional document. Government will occur at the state and local level, and society will center on families. The family will be ordered in a patriarchal fashion. Parents will be responsible for the education of their children. Public or government education is thought to rob the family of the right to shape its children by biblical beliefs, unquote. So if you take this idea here and secularize it, so start saying that the government's going to be mostly local, that we're going to really shave down the federal government. 
and we're going to get to the bare bones of the Constitution. And the government shouldn't be funding welfare programs because if everything's operating at a local level, people will be working and subsisting within their communities with the the family and the church as the basic uh, instrument of society around which society is governed. What do you have here? What you have is the Tea Party. And that's actually not an accident. Gary North was the economist of choice for the Tea Party. And he is married to the daughter of Rush Dooney, the guy who started Christian Reconstruction. But this also goes back to oil. Gary North's economic ideas, which shaped the Tea Party, stem from a journal called The Christian Economist. The Christian Economist was funded by the Pew families, which was one of the leading oil families that ran the Sun Oil Company out of Texas. So what do you think you're going to find in an economics magazine that's funded by an oil family? You're going to find in their economic principles and values that benefit oil. Things like government deregulation, free market capitalism, uh, things that supported the independent wildcatters while they're running up against Rockefeller. The principles that defined the Tea Party were the libertarian principles of government deregulation that were designed to benefit oil companies. These principles were not designed to, to help the most vulnerable and poorest people in our society. They were designed to benefit oil companies. So it really shouldn't be a surprise that Sarah Palin emerged as the de facto leader of the Tea Party because her home state, where she once served as governor, was heavily grounded in these principles that benefit oil companies. And the transfer of values between oil companies and Christianity in Alaska was all but complete. But we also have to look at where the money came from in funding the Tea Party. It was funded mostly by the Koch brothers. The Koch brothers are hardcore libertarians because libertarianism, things like government deregulation, benefits oil. And these guys, the Koch brothers, made their fortune in oil. So a lot of this modern populism that we saw in the Tea Party, beginning with the election of Barack Obama, it stems actually very directly, both directly and indirectly, from oil. So your bio says that you're completing uh, a doctorate. It's, are you? Uh, would this be the same topic of your dissertation? Well, my dissertation is on dispensational theology in the religious right. So there's definitely an intersection of oil politics. And the reason that I came to Alaska in the first place was to try to understand why the religious right became so particularly strong in Alaska. And so I came here to try to understand this for my doctoral thesis. And what I ended up finding was that it was very heavily grounded in oil. And so going back to my doctoral thesis, there was definitely going to be a lot of content about how oil shaped this use of dispensational theology with the rise of the religious right. Yeah, that, that's like a re recurring theme I've been picking up on a lot, especially under the presidency of Trump, is that the, you know, uh, evangelical Christians, uh, you know, in one sense, they, they will talk about the importance of Scripture and understanding Scripture and Scripture being first and so forth. But when you look at the politics of the Christian right and their support for Trump and, and lots of other things, it's really a movement that's really about getting political power and keeping political power. Yes. And so if we can keep the conversation here centered on values, 
what we see in evangelicalism today with the evangelical support of Trump is that wealth and power are the things that evangelicals are valuing the most. When I say evangelicals, I'm referring to white evangelicals because evangelicalism is very diverse. There are other racial groups that uh, have a very strong evangelical presence, but they did not vote for Trump and they're not part of this populist movement. But pointing to the white evangelicalism and the support of Trump, we're finding that they're endorsing the values of these oil companies because of how this transfer of values has consistently been going on throughout the history of the Protestant fundamentalist movement going back to the Civil War era, and then how it got revamped in the 1970s with the OPEC embargo and the rise of their religious right. Uh, So uh, I'm not going to make a statement on whether or not evangelicals today believe the Bible or if if they're um, abiding by the Bible. What I am going to say is that the the values that they're bringing into the political arena and that they're bringing into the voting booth especially with the support of Trump, is they're bringing the values of oil companies. K.L. Marshall, thank you very much for joining the Protestants Politics Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode was recorded on August 26th of 2020. The background music is courtesy of Purple Planet. The next episode of Protestants and Politics will be about pro-slavery theologians. Are they still influential in evangelical churches today? My guest will be Diana Butler Bass. Be sure to sign up for the Protestants and Politics newsletter. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to my coffee page. You'll find links to both of those in the podcast description.